What a year it's been. We've been put into a situation unlike any other we've experienced in over a century. And we're finally starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Like you, I can't wait for it to arrive. Say it with me. The end of the COVID-19 pandemic. Over the course of this season, we've learned so much about the disease, the virus, and the impacts on our lives. But more importantly, we've learned about science. Now, the pandemic, obviously, it's not awesome. But the work that has been done truly is. As we reach the end of this season, it's time to learn about the one scientific discovery that has given us so much hope for the future. It's the mRNA vaccines. This week, we've got a special episode in store. We're going to talk with one of the inventors of the mRNA vaccines that we love so much. We'll talk about the journey that he's taken, well over four decades of it, and what he feels may come not just against SARS-CoV-2, but other diseases as well. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to send you into the summer on a high note that will have you rolling up your sleeves with joy. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. When we first heard about the SARS-CoV-2 virus in January of 2020, no one at the time knew what was to come. And yet what happened next was almost unimaginable. We tried to stop it using the methods of the past like lockdowns and distancing, but we all knew that was not going to last. There were only two ways to get out of this predicament. One was to let the virus spread through the population and live with the toll. The other was to develop a vaccine. Now, out of this effort came another unexpected surprise. It was called an mRNA vaccine, and it was based on a technology developed decades earlier. Now, by all accounts, it was a risk. If this had been any other virus, it may have been overlooked. But the pandemic called for a change of mind and of paradigm. We've since learned that they work better than we could have hoped. And we might be able to say the rest is history. But that history is a story we all need to hear and I am joined by the one person who has been through it all. I am thrilled to talk with Peter Cullis. He is a professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at the University of British Columbia. He is the scientific director and CEO of the Nanomedicines Innovation Network and the founding director of the Center for Drug Research and Development. When you get an mRNA vaccine, you are honoring the work that he and his colleagues have done. And as this technology will no doubt end the pandemic, I find it only fitting that he will be helping us to end this season. I want to go back to 1978 when you discovered the secret of membrane fusion and the hexagonal phase. What was the objective back then, other than perhaps to publish in Nature? Uh, Yeah, that's going a long way back. At that stage, I was a postdoc. Actually, I just joined uh, UBC, but the work was done in Holland. And before then, I'd been a postdoc at the University of Oxford in the UK. I was ri- I'm originally a physicist. I, my PhD is in physics. But uh, when I got to the end of my physics PhD, uh, I realized that the in- really interesting problems uh, were outside the range of physics, and particularly in the area of biology. 
And uh, so I, I went to Oxford not knowing anything about biochemistry or, or biology for that matter. I knew, I knew a bit about magnetic resonance. And so I got involved in studying the, um, the properties of lipids. I was joined in Oxford by another postdoc called Ben de Krauf. He brought with him a, um, a whole library of lipids, and we got uh, to studying their structural preferences once they got placed into water. I joined Ben in, um, in Holland at the University of Utrecht uh, in 1977. Another postdoc, Mick Hope, uh, who had just graduated from University College London, was also there, and he was an expert in membrane fusion. Anyway, I had this idea that uh, the, uh, these, these different structures of lipids could explain some of the aspects of, uh, of membrane fusion. And uh, we, um, we went through a series of experiments. The upshot was that uh, the, um, uh, the involvement of these non so-called non-bilayer structures uh, in uh, membrane fusion uh, was pretty apparent. And uh, so that was the paper that we got published in the Nature in 1978. When you say as an objective, it was it was really trying to understand what the roles of different lipids in membranes really are. Obviously, membrane fusion is a vital part of uh, of biology. I mean, for fertilization and membrane transport and all everything depends on membrane fusion uh, in a in a fundamental way. When you saw this whole idea of a hexagon, a six-sided figure, which we didn't think was very natural, what was it like to have that feeling of, oh my goodness, we may have found something that could potentially lead to movement through a membrane? It was a very satisfying experiment to do. See, the fundamental problem was that the assumption was up till that time, to all these different lipids and membranes, their major function was just to provide what's termed a bilayer structure. It uh, separates the inside of a cell from the outside of a cell. The uh, ability of these lipids to adopt these other structures and then correlating that with an important biological function, uh, that, was, uh, that was quite satisfying. And uh, the, um, you know, that kind of work is still going on uh, today in membrane biophysics. Let's go on a journey from discovering that hexagon phase to the development of lipid delivery systems and, of course, what we call lipid nanoparticles. Right. What we, what we would use are what's termed model membranes. And so the uh, idea there is just to purify from the uh, biological membrane lipid components and then make these model membranes just simply by taking these pure lipids and then putting them into water and seeing what the, uh, the, the biophysical properties of those components are and trying to relate them back to function. One of the major model membrane systems is the, where the lipids are arranged in a bilayer organization uh, that separates a inner aqueous phase from the external environment. In order to characterize the lipids in these systems as accurately as we could, we needed very well-defined model membrane systems. We developed uh, what are termed um, large unilamellar vesicles. Essentially, they're not that large. <laughs> they're about less than 100 nanometers in diameter, but we developed ways of making these systems in a very reproducible way. Well, then it became apparent they could be potentially used as drug delivery vehicles. And here, you know, we're driven by some fairly fundamental observations uh, particularly with regard to cancer drugs. When we give a, a cancer drug to uh, an individual, the um, amount of drug that actually gets to, say, the tumor site is less than 0.001% of the total administered dose. 99.9% .9 of, uh, of the drug 
goes everywhere in your body and obviously causes all the effects related to hair falling out and throwing up and um, you know many more serious problems. And so uh, we were driven by the, the possibility of putting cancer drugs into these model membrane systems and then using them as uh, ways to perhaps uh, deliver the contents uh, more accurately. That was a, um, a departure uh, from studying, obviously, the roles of lipids and membranes uh, through to a quite quite uh, direct application. Uh, but uh, we were we were pretty successful in that. Uh, so we found ways of loading them in, and we found ways of uh, making them circulate for a long time in the body. We ended up with three drugs that got approved by the FDA as a result of that work. So it was quite a, a long journey, but um, really started to prove out the utility of using these uh, quite natural systems in a way, because you're just using uh, lipids that are found in biological membranes, but using them as a, um, as a way to uh, deliver you know, the therapeutic or chemotherapeutic uh, capability of these small molecule drugs, of cancer drugs. I really enjoy the idea that these are natural chemicals. These are chemicals that are found inside of us, like a cholesterol, like the oleic acid from your 1978 paper. It's not like it's something that has been made in a laboratory, although there are some molecules that maybe don't naturally happen inside of us. But for the most part, these are probably the most natural type of drug delivery systems we've ever seen. That's correct. It's no accident that we're using uh, lipids because nature uh, uses these lipids in the first place. And of course, you have an added advantage uh, that because we're using uh, naturally occurring lipids, um, then they're biodegradable. And so the um, body is able to metabolize these lipids, these uh, delivery systems in ways that are um, just using the normal metabolic processes in the body. And in essence, they're kind of like a food. There's a, a lack of toxicity that's associated with them as a result of that. So this is, this is a huge advantage. The other part, of course, is that nature provides you with a whole range of, uh, of materials to work with. So there's a, as you said, I mean, there's, the, there's cholesterol, there's phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylethanolamine, uh, phosphatidylglycerol. I'm just uh, saying these, these uh, names just to indicate that there's hundreds, really, um, of, different, uh, of different lipids to choose from that nature, nature uses, uh, all of which can be utilized, or many of which can be utilized, uh, to design uh, delivery systems with particular, uh, with particular functions. To learn from nature and, and build on what nature does uh, is uh, is, uh, is a good way to go. Uh, the um, it certainly has proved fruitful for us. As you've heard, the lipid nanoparticle is quite possibly one of the most innovative technological advancements we've seen in decades, and its usefulness is only getting started. The reason for this happens to be an age-old explanation and one that I hope you have appreciated while listening to this show. Scientific advancement, while necessary, is usually very, very slow. You see, making miracles is possible, but you can't expect them overnight. And so, as we continue our discussion with Peter Cullis, I want you to listen to his telling of how the mRNA vaccine came to be, and realize that while they have proven to be an overnight success, they had to rely on a long period of work behind the scenes and a little help 
from luck. Gene therapy was becoming quite popular, the whole idea of being able to do gene therapy. In order to get into this field, we had to, uh, we had to devise ways of encapsulating uh, these much larger uh, entities. I mean, just to give you a bit of a guide, uh, the, uh, say, a, a cancer drug might have a molecular weight of about 500 Daltons, whereas the first one we worked on was called small interfering RNA. Uh, which has a molecular weight of 13,000, 13 kilodaltons. So it's a huge molecule. And uh, so we had to use completely different ways um, of encapsulating the molecules, these bigger molecules. In order to do that, we had to devise um, new lipids, really. In order to encapsulate a negatively charged entity, such as nucleic acid, polymer, DNA, RNA, you have to use uh, what's termed cationic lipids, positively charged lipids. Uh, so they associate with the negative charges on the uh, on the nucleic acid polymers and allow you to uh, get something that you can you know in a, in a particulate form. But these lipids tend to be very toxic. Uh, the um, there are no positively charged lipids in nature. We devised lipids that were only positively charged at um, at low pH, the acidity of a lemon. They would become positively charged. And we found ways of encapsulating small interfering RNA, the sRNA. They're, they're termed ionizable cationic lipids. Well, then we came to the attention of a company in Boston. What they were trying to silence uh, genes in the liver. We started to apply this technology. And over about a seven-year period, we managed to silence genes uh, in, in, the, in the liver following intravenous injection. Uh, so uh, this resulted in, uh, in 2012 in a drug going into the clinic, and it's now called Onpatro, uh, to silence a gene in the, um, in the liver, uh, in the hepatocytes in the liver. The, the gene they're silencing that is called uh, transthyretin, the protein, it's a transport protein uh, in, the, uh, in the blood. Uh, but if there's a mutation in it, it uh, forms these big fibrils which can deposit in various tissues. And the um, and so that particularly in nerve tissue and in uh, cardiac tissue. And so uh, the objective here was to silence that gene uh, in the um, in in the liver, and then these fibrils would not be made, and perhaps we could actually start to even to reverse uh, some of the effects of this uh, of this genetic disorder, which affects about fifty thousand people worldwide. So um, I thought that was a huge advance. From about 2012 on, one of the companies I co-founded called Acuitus uh, then said, okay, well, if we can deliver a big molecule inside cells uh, in, the, in the liver, perhaps we can deliver much larger entities, uh, particularly messenger RNA. mRNA is kind of like the intermediary between your genome and proteins. If you have a messenger RNA for any particular protein and you can get that inside a cell, uh, then you can have any protein you want being made in that cell. Now, after being in this area for a couple of years, we were contacted by an immunologist from the University of Pennsylvania uh, named Drew Weissman. And so uh, Drew was a, uh, he'd been proposing mRNA as, uh, for use as vaccines. Uh, but what he needed was a way to get that mRNA, uh, messenger RNA that might be coding for protein that's associated with, um, with a virus. He needed a way to get that mRNA into, uh, into cells following, say, an intramuscular injection. So uh, we, start, we, through Acuitas, started to work with Drew 
and uh, found that the, uh, the these systems were also very very effective uh, vaccines uh, initially starting with say Zika virus, uh, influenza virus, etc., and uh, showing that Eastern animal models, these were uh, extremely effective vaccines. And they looked to have some real promise. Well, in the meantime, Acuitas uh, managed to strike up a uh, collaboration, both with BioNTech, I guess is a company in Germany, uh, that was wanting to use messenger RNA for cancer vaccines, as well as a, another company in Germany called CureVac um, that was uh, looking at cancer vaccines, but also other vaccines. And one of those was rabies. CureVac published results of a phase one trial uh, showing that uh, there was a highly effective vaccine against uh, rabies uh, in, 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 in the clinic. Uh, so this is uh, in people. That, that result was published in early January of 2020. And at that point, um, BioNTech had been working with Pfizer on a, um, on a flu vaccine. I think when they saw the results of the CureVac trial, I said, okay, um, <clears throat> this, uh, the messenger RNA is clearly a very effective uh, approach, is clearly can provide very effective vaccines. And the um, and they then uh, said, okay, well let's let's move forward with a messenger mRNA vaccine uh, for COVID nineteen for the SARS CoV two virus. You know, this is really something that uh, has involved uh, yeah, a huge number of people um, over the years. Uh, the um, in a highly collaborative way, we're still working together today. Tom Madden is the CEO of Acuitas Therapeutics, and Mick Hope. Uh, just retired actually from from Acuitas. but the point being that uh, it was this long and uh, you know long association with a enormous reservoir of knowledge uh, that we accumulated over the years that really allowed uh, this whole process to happen. And yet it's so fascinating because this has been this 42, 43 year long process, and yet the clinical trials for the CureVac came up as COVID-19 became a pandemic. Perhaps the mRNA vaccine was literally made for COVID. Well, yes. A lot of immunologists were saying, well, this really can't be true. There's only one approved drug using this kind of technology with lipid nanoparticles. And uh, to then say, okay, we're going to use uh, an extrapolation of that to uh, messenger RNA as a vaccine uh, to treat billions of people. Well, it was one heck of a jump, you know, from the previous technology, which is uh, either deactivated viruses or getting viruses to produce uh, particular proteins that will give a, give a good immune response. So you can understand the skepticism. I do think that, uh, you know, some people here uh, are uh, really uh, went out on a limb. And here's the kicker. It actually has better effectiveness than the old traditional methods. Viral vaccines, whether they be live, killed, or just vectors like the adenovirus, it just seems to have been written on the wall that this was something that could possibly take us into the future. But you needed to have that one person who put their signature on it or did the initials in the right place. And, and I'm just so happy that it finally happened. Do you think that we could be looking at mRNA vaccines as the standard platform for the near future? It, it certainly is a possibility. Uh, you know, I mean, it's something that nobody would have ever predicted, say, a year ago. But when you look at the performance of the mRNA vaccines uh, versus the other vaccines, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, etc., 
which are good vaccines. I mean, they're they're according to all our all of our previous standards, they're great. But uh, the um, certainly the mRNA based vaccines uh, are are looking extraordinarily promising. So I think you're going to see big advances. I think we're going to see um, HIV, uh, AIDS, new vaccines coming in there. Uh, some of that work is looking very promising, and many other areas, and particularly cancer vaccines, uh, where um, you know, essentially, you take a protein that's uh, particular to the uh, to the cancer uh, messenger RNA coding for that protein, and then raise the immune response against that protein. Uh, these kinds of approaches, I think, are going to be coming into uh, into vogue. So, yeah, there's a heck of a lot of running room here. This is an exploding field. I, I always refer to it as the third generation of pharmaceuticals. I mean, we've had first generation. Uh, which are small molecule drugs, uh, like cancer drugs, um, second generation biologics, like monoclonal antibodies, et cetera. But then the third generation, I think, are going to be these gene therapies, our understanding of molecular biology uh, in a very direct way uh, to manipulate the body to, uh, to be able to fight, fight disease uh, as opposed to um, more of a symptomatic uh, approach. What I really enjoy, though, and I say this as a science communicator, is that it takes away so many of the hesitancy taglines that you hear because it's natural. It uses mRNA. And the reality is it's incredibly fragile in terms of its ability to be broken down by normal cellular processes. The worst that I have ever heard from the hesitancy people is that the mRNA is gonna change your genes, which is impossible if you took grade nine biology, you would know that. So the reality is not only have you done this in an amazing fashion, but you've also had the idea of translational communication sort of as a part of what you're doing so that it makes my job so much easier to convince people to go and get the vaccine. Yeah, yeah, no, it really, it really has that aspect. We're certainly taking advantage of um, our understanding of biology in a very direct way. We we can take advantage of biological processes, uh, you know, to a great effect here. I think you you know what we what, this is really the first the first crack at it, right? I th I do think you're going to see uh, these vaccines get better and better and possibly more potent in the future. There's no reason I see uh, that we can't produce uh, these types of vaccines. Uh, more cheaply. The other point, of course, is that if there are variants, you know, that come along that are are an issue, uh, we do have the ability to uh, respond to that in very very quickly. If there is a variant that's a problem, uh, synthesizing the mRNA that will raise a very direct immune response to that variant uh, is something that can be done in a matter of a month or two, and um, then formulating that into a, a lipid nanocarrier can be done in a you know matter of a week or two. And, or just using the same processes we're already employing. And so we can respond quite quickly to any uh, changes and, or for that matter, a new, a new virus that might be a threat. So it's, it's adding enormously uh, to our repertoire in terms of treating uh, human disease, for sure. That takes us to the end of the discussion and the end of this season. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. I want to thank everyone for sending me their tweets, DMs, emails, and SpeakPipe voice messages. I am so grateful for your kind words and your awesome questions. We simply couldn't have done it without you. 
Even though the season is over, I'm still around, so feel free to tweet me at jatetro or send me an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you about this season and also about ideas for future episodes. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Peter Collis. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer, and sound design and final production is by Greg Schott. Have a great summer, stay safe, get vaccinated, and as always, make sure to show them some sass. <laughs>